And so I got really interested in this idea of how can I, how can I help people be the best that they can be? How can I help teams be the best they can be? Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. We are a learning community for people at a career crossroads, ready to rejoin their soul and their role. We have long-form conversations about self-awareness, relationships, tapping into your inner genius, and building sustainable habits. We are led by our questions. We're curious. We're storytellers. The more we learn, the better we get. And there are people all around us who have done the work. We think they have a lot to say about how we can discern and activate our own purpose. I'm Shelley Prevost. I'm an educational psychologist and the founder of Big Self. And I'm Chad Prevost. I'm a media specialist. I write, research, and produce content across industries. To learn more about how to join the tribe, go to shellyprevost.com slash bigselfsociety. Let's get started. guys located and how are you guys doing right now? So yeah, I'm in Maryland and Maryland was one of the, the first few states to, to take pretty bold action. I think uh, the governor shut down the schools. He's since um, shut down bars and restaurants to, to minimal. I think restaurants can still do curbside pickup um, delivery, things like that. But but yeah, we're doing well. I mean, we we are very fortunate. Um, we've you know we prepared. I have my own business, my own consulting and training business. So uh, I prepared for this unfortunate outcome a long time ago to say, hey, if anything ever happened, you know, we needed to make sure we had our, our rainy day fund to to carry us through for at least six months, if not a year. So I feel very very blessed and very fortunate to to have done that. My wife, she works uh, at a job where. Um, her job is not in danger and she's able to, to work from home some. So um, we're doing okay. Everybody's healthy. Everybody's happy. Everybody's uh, safe right now. So we're, we're, we're very good. Good to hear. You know, we've been saying that this is a classic crisis and opportunity situation right now. Tom, you recently wrote on LinkedIn, change your questions and you change your life. The questions we ask ourselves have a profound impact on the actions we take and the emotions we feel. We don't always see or recognize this, and that is why it is so important to have a coach. Tom, what are some of those questions? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> pun intended there. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, part of the reason I wrote that is because I think sometimes people get wrapped around the axle of especially when it comes to business and, and work is like, Oh, I've got to learn this thing. I've got to learn this solution. If I, if I learn how to make online courses, like that'll, that'll be the thing that gets me through. Or if I, if I take this training, that'll be the thing. And oftentimes we don't take, uh, we don't take the opportunity to step back and ask a question. And I'm a bigger fan of asking questions, asking powerful questions as a way to elicit change and powerful change and, and sustainable change. Because as a coach, I can tell you all day long, if you come to me and say, hey, Tom, I want to learn how to be more creative. And I've got methods and tools that I use all the time with the clients that I work with to help you be more creative. But oftentimes that's going to be, it's more prescriptive. It's more problem oriented. And if you want sustainable change, then you have to start asking yourself bigger questions, you know, and a question in that instance I might ask is, well, if somebody came to me and I have this happen often because of my, my coaching work and innovation, Hey Tom, how do I become more creative? How do I become more innovative? And then I might ask them, well, why do you want what you want? Why is it that you want to be more creative? What are you doing now that you think is preventing you from being creative? Um, you know, I would, I would go down a, a you know, a, a different line of in inquiry there with them. And I think, the, the takeaway for everybody is stop worrying about kind of solutions and start worrying more about the questions that you're asking yourselves. And as we begin to ask ourselves bigger questions, deeper questions, that's going to be the tool or the, the mechanism for, for change, if that makes sense. I love this. For our listeners, Tom and I have known each other for years now. We've been working on positive psychology in different worlds, different sectors, and our worlds serendipitously connected over the work that we were both doing. And I think the way that you're talking about the questions right now, it makes me think of the work we're doing and the way of the, the framing of the questions. And I keep thinking about the opportunity of following your curiosity. 
versus just what a, a lot of people are feeling right now, which is a lot of fear. But when you can expand your curiosity a little bit, that's how we break out of our fear and stress. It's a process to get to the place of curiosity and bigger questions. Yeah, no, I, I really love the avenue of going down with curiosity. Here's, here's why I think curiosity is really important. And by the way, Todd Cashdan wrote a whole book. Um, I forget the name of it. It's like Get Curious or, or, or Curiosity. But he, he, he's done his whole t- entire career on curiosity. So if you, if you want to learn more about curiosity and the benefits and why it's so powerful, definitely check out Todd's book. It's really great. But here's what I'll say about opportunity versus fear. When we're curious... Um, what that does is it marshals our signature strengths. It marshals the strengths that we bring to bear every single day as easily as if we're breathing. And why that is important is because when we use our strengths, the things that make us who we are, the things that allow us to be successful, that's when we're going to begin to look at what lays in front of us, even in a time of a pandemic, in the lens of opportunities because those things that we've used our strengths in the past, those are the ones that helped us to push through those challenges, to push through adversity, to bounce back from adversity. And so I think it's really important to think about it in that lens of curiosity because now hopefully people are beginning to think about, okay, what is it that I'm good at? Right. And so when I talk about strengths, um, this is part and part and parcel to the work that I've done in resilience, but uh, one great uh, resource for, for everyone listening to check out is the values in action survey. Um, yeah. If you go to, uh, I forget the, the, the exact hyperlink, but I think it's via character survey.com or something like that. But, um, but if you, if you Google values in action, character strengths, you'll find uh, a really fantastic resource. There's some other resources out there that are really great. Um, uh, Strengths Finder 2.0 by Tom Rath from Gallup uh, is another one that that tends to use language that's more professional work related versus the via strengths um, is more I'll say universal. And what I love about the via strengths is they there's 24 strengths. So when you when we talk about strengths, we're talking about things like courage or wisdom or um, the love of learning or the capacity to love and be loved. So there's these 24 strengths. And what was really great about this and and why I think they're so powerful for everybody is that the original psychologists, both Martin Seligman and Chris Peterson, they, they wanted to answer this question of like, are there, are there these kind of universally praised strengths or values that we can uh, begin to have a conversation around? And so they looked at, um, they, they looked at across they looked at people across time, across geography, across uh, ethnicity, across culture, uh, all these different dimensions. And they wanted to say, okay, are what are the kind of the universally praised or valued strengths and and this is what they synthesize as a result of that. And so what's great about this, these are strengths that we all have. Uh, now we all have a different constellation of what those strengths look like, but they're strengths that we all have. And so, in this time, when you're looking for something practical to do, to be able to start taking advantage of those opportunities and to, to start seeing them as opportunities, I would encourage everybody just to go through and take the survey. It doesn't take a long time and really get an understanding of what your strengths are, because most people don't actually know what their strengths are. And then use that knowledge and some of the resources that the VIA Institute, as well as uh, Dr. Ryan Nemec, uh, talk about uh, different different activities, different exercises to be able to start practicing those strengths. And I promise you, if nothing else, if that's all you do because of this, uh, what's, what's happened, you will be so much more effective and you'll be so much more happy uh, or find more well-being in your life if you do that. You know, I think a lot of people are calling this the great pause of 2020, you know, and I think there's something about having the time and the space to do something about this work because it's it's so convenient for us not to do when we're busy all the time. Most of the services, as I understand, are free. Absolutely, via you could via survey is free. They have some paid versions, but honestly, you really don't need to do them. I mean, I use them in my coaching work, um, but you know, from a just a, a the average Joe looking at you, absolutely, you can get massive uh, value out of, out of the free resources that they have. 
I'm going to pause for just a second. I might know this, but you come from an engineering background, right? I do. So my background is originally in what we call RF engineering, so radio frequency. I used to design um, combat systems in Iraq and Afghanistan that would go out into Iraq and Afghanistan and protect our soldiers from improvised explosive devices. So how in the world did an engineer get into the world of strength-based and positive psychology and all the work that you're doing, especially with life design and design thinking? I think it was because I went to work for, at the, well, I worked there for 15 years. I worked for the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab, so a big nerd house. And I quickly realized there was a lot of other smarter engineers than I was. Um, no, I, I honestly, I think a big part of my journey to where I'm at now started with one of my signature strengths, which is both a love of learning and curiosity. And those are really rich strengths for me, strengths that I lean into. And I'd, I'd say back in, it was actually when I was working on that program where I was designing, uh, helping design and, and, and lead this team to, um, to put these combat systems out in Iraq and Afghanistan to protect our troops. And I noticed at that time that because of the nature of the work that we were doing, I mean, this was at the height of the Iraq war, the height at uh, the Afghanistan war. So not sure how much you remember about that, but th at, at the height of that, there was, especially in the beginning, our soldiers were being uh, killed and injured at a phenomenal rate. I mean, upwards of, you know, 70 to a hundred uh, troop uh, personnel a day. And the bad guys were always kind of adapting. And so whatever we would do, they would figure out something else to do and then we would figure out something and they would figure it. So it was just kind of back and forth, back and forth. And I noticed at the time that our team was becoming, the team that I was leading was becoming more pessimistic. You know, why, why are we doing this? They would say, Tom, like, why bother? Like the bad guy's just going to come up with another way. And so at, at that point I said, you know what, there's, there has to be a better way to lead a team. There has to be a better way to cultivate excellence and, and, both as a group, you know, as a, as a team, but also individually. And so I got really interested in this idea of how can I, how can I help people be the best that they can be? How can I help teams be the best they can be? And so uh, quite serendipitously at that time, I was reading a book called Learned Optimism by Martin Seligman, who ended up being one of my professors when I was at the University of Pennsylvania. I went back to study uh, the ma a Master's of Applied Positive Psychology through the uh, University of Pennsylvania it was the first program of its kind. And I'll say quite candidly, the reason why I was, I was reading that book to begin with was not because of professional exploits, but because I myself was struggling in my life. You know, I, 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 I didn't go to the doctors at the time, but I'm sure if I did, they would have told you, they would have told me that I was, I was depressed. And so I was just kind of doing what I always do, which is to, to exercise my strength of curiosity and love of learning and, and try to learn something. And, and I picked up this book and it just clicked for me. And I, I did a little research, found out they had this program and said, okay, I'm going to go do this program. And, and professionally, absolutely, I wanted to, to learn how to be a, a better leader, help develop a better team. But personally, I, I also wanted to, to live a life of, of well-being. I wanted to live a life that I was proud of. I wanted to live a life that, that had more meaning and purpose, which at the time might have seemed silly given the work that I was doing, but that's kind of where I was. And through that, through that, uh, through that experience, um, I, one of my professors ended up um, giving us a case study of IDEO and how they were using a lot of positive psych at the time in, in this particular project. And, and so I, they introduced us to IDEO and this concept of design thinking. And so then I got really into that and how can I leverage that as well as um, positive psych in the work that I was doing with the applied physics lab and and so that was just this kind of serendipitous journey to, you know, leveraging um, positive psychology and design thinking and the work that I do, both coaching work as well as uh, consulting and training work with organizations. That's a fascinating journey. And amongst other things, you taught resilience to these soldiers. <laughs> Could you tell us about how that application applies to people in the normal world? What would you tell them about developing resilience? Yeah, let me let me take a step back and just kind of orient everybody around like what this work was. So, um, it's called MRT, Master Resilience Training Program, and it was started within the U.S. Army. And what happened was, as kind of referencing the um, the, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, we had a lot of people coming back with PTSD, anxiety, depression, um, 
all, all tight, all manners of psychological ills. Yeah. Host of, uh, of problems. And we have a pretty long, I'll say a, a pretty longitudinal basis of data to tell us that over the last 60, 70 years, we're, we're pretty bad at treating PTSD. We're pretty bad at treating um, depression. We're pretty bad at treating anxiety. And so knowing that we're not really that good at it, we thought, well, maybe there is an opportunity to, what if, what if we could inoculate soldiers against the psychological ills of war? That is to say, we know that they're going to face adversity if they whether they go to war or not, being in the military is, is a pretty tough lifestyle. My dad was in the Marine Corps for 27 years. Hoorah, Semper Fi. And, <laughs> and, and so I, I, I understand that very, very viscerally. And so the idea was, could we inoculate them against the psychological ills of war? And, and so this work was born out of work that was going on with um, the Penn Resiliency Program with, uh, stu- like with schools in the inner city in, in Philadelphia, as well as some other work that they had done. And the idea was, could we teach them the cognitive tools of resilience so that when they inevitably come upon adversity in their life, would they be able to bounce back and push through using these skills? And the good news is, in a big kind of big program like this, because it's the military and they can just kind of institute it whenever they want, they're, they're not doing any harm. So the, 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 the data that we have now over the last 10 years suggests, okay, we're not doing any harm. And the data suggests that it's, uh, it looks likely that they're, we're offering some improvements. Um, it, it's probably going to shake out a little bit longer as to whether it's, um, you know, if you, if you took a control group of no, no interventions and then this group with the intervention, how much better it will be. But, um, but I can tell you anecdotally, from my own practice, from my own coaching, that it absolutely, these cognitive tools absolutely help. Okay, so that's kind of the background. Let's talk about what this stuff was and, and how that translates to kind of the everyday layperson. A bulk of what we did in the um, the Master Resilience Training Program was teaching them these different psychological tools. So one was uh, around the ABC model. So this has its roots in uh, Aaron Beck and cognitive behavioral therapy. So this ABC model, it's pretty simple, right? Um, the idea is you have some activating event, that's your A, and that is a, an adversity of some sort. And based off of that event, you, the person, uh, you form or, or create some set of beliefs and those beliefs drive your emotions and your behaviors. Um, that is the C, the consequences of those beliefs, uh, behaviors, emotions, etc. Um, and first off, just like understanding that it's not the, the, the event itself, but it's your beliefs around that event can be a pretty game changer for most people. So, you know, most people think like, okay, um, you know, my son comes home and he, and he says, you know, dad, I, I failed my math exam. And, you know, he immediately says, gosh, like, I'm so stupid. Like I always fail my math. It's not that he failed his math exam. That's causing him this pain. It's his beliefs around the failing of that math exam that are driving him to feel bad or for him to say, you know what, I'm not going to study anymore because why bother studying? I've always failed my math exam because that's the belief that I have in my head. And so the the beliefs that we create, the stories that we tell ourselves are so powerful. Yeah, right? And, And so that leads to this other piece around thinking traps. And this is kind of the, what I would say is the more practical application for you, for me, for everybody is we have these um, these thinking traps that we fall into, and when we when we create a belief, right? So let me give you an example. Uh, well, actually, let's reference the example with my son, and if he comes home and he says he fails a uh, fails his math exam, yeah, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> so we we're so these thinking traps they're they're kind of like cognitive shortcuts. Um, they help us probably 90% of the time because we have so much data coming at us that we need to be able to process that data in real time. We need to be able to process data, data really, really quickly. And so we do things like jumping to conclusions. We do things like mind reading. We do things like always, always, always. Everything, everything, everything. Me, me, me. Them, them, them. And so let's unpack these a little bit, right? If my son comes home and says, um, Wow, you know, I failed my 
failed my math exam and he and his belief is like uh, I'm, I'm stupid at math and I'm always going to be stupid at math well there's some thinking traps that are going on to there he's he, he's he potentially jumping to conclusions right you're the conclusion he's jumping to in his mind is well I'm always going to fail it and there's a, an element of always 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 this is the way it is this is the way it's always going to be um, and he might say something like well you know I, I failed my math exam and you know, I'm never going to get into college and, it's, and I'm not going to get a good job. And right. And so that might be everything, everything, everything. It's going to affect all phases of my life. So if we can just slow down our thinking, if we can think more accurately, if we can think more flexibly, then we can begin to, to take a couple steps back and say, oh, well, actually, that's not right. And so the first thing that you need to do is just become more aware. And I always tell people, just keep a journal, keep a little moleskine journal or, or even just a cheap little, uh, four by six inch, uh, yeah. And just, and, or yeah, on your iPad and, and, and just keep it with you. And as you, as you go out through, throughout your day, try to notice when you're encountering some of these thinking traps. Am I jumping to conclusions? When am I jumping to conclusions? Why am I doing that? Am I doing some mind reading? So for all the married uh, couples out there, I mean, I, I can raise my hand a thousand times and say that I I've, I experienced this thinking trap and I even know about it, right? So it's not always easy. Uh, I'm even aware and I'm still, you know, mind reading. Yeah, like but this those- is a thing and I'm going through it right now. I just want to say, I'm so glad you're saying this. This is a tool that I use in coaching as well. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure people hear that, the ABC method. A is for activating. See, he's learning already. <laughs> A is your activating event, right? That's the adversity in your life. And listen, I can't predict the future, but what I can tell you is that every single one of us is going to have adversity in our life. So it's really important that we understand this, right? So A is the activating event or the adversity. B is your beliefs. Uh, and when you engage in your thinking traps, your beliefs are formed uh, because of those thinking traps, whether it's jumping to conclusions, reading minds, thinking it's always about me, 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 or them, 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 or that it's going to affect all areas of our life all the time. Um, and then finally, those beliefs that we have, those drive the C, which is consequences. That is the emotions that we feel, the behaviors that we engage in, the activities or the decisions that we make because of those beliefs. And I tell people that the work is at the B. That's where we have to get more aware and more conscious. So many of those belief systems are from childhood scripts that one time served us well, and they're not serving us well anymore. So we really need to do work around those scripts. And if I may ask a question, I'm I'm not an expert in this field, and I'm, I'm trying to, I think a couple of curiosity type of questions emerge from what you guys are saying. So number one, you say that 90% of our brains, we can't handle all the decisions we're making because our brains would overload otherwise. But is there a need for that to create efficiencies? Isn't that already a need? And the other question is, what if at times we do come to accurate conclusions that we really aren't as good at something? (laughs) Yeah, great questions. So the first one, I'll I'll, I'll say yes. Uh, we we do need to these these thinking traps or these thinking shortcuts, these cognitive uh, shortcuts. They serve us well most of the time because we do have data coming at us from all angles, right? There's nonverbal communication that people send to us. There's uh, direct communication. There's all these different things. And so if we if we try to slow down our thinking all the time, it, it would just it wouldn't be practical. Um, and, and, and I would say, yes, there are times when you are right and you are correct, but what's important there. And I always tell people is to slow down your thinking, uh, in these moments where there, in these moments of adversity, or when there's these moments when you're beating yourself up or you start having a negative, uh, uh, track going in your head, um, you want to slow down your thinking in those moments to think one more slowly, but two more flexibly or even more accurately to almost be a, become a, de- a detective of your thoughts, right? To say, is this really true? Right. Is this really true? Um, another, uh, another, well, I'll, I'll wait before I talk about that one. Does that make sense though? 
Yeah, it does. Because, you know, I remember in high school, I really wanted to be a great guitarist, but almost every time I'd come <laughs> home after jamming with someone, I'd feel bad about myself because more often than not, the person I played with was better than me. And over time, I had to take an honest assessment that I'm okay at it, but others seemed more gifted or at least were able to focus and be disciplined in a way that led them to get better faster. I think at some point we have to be able to take honest evaluations of ourselves, Absolutely. even if it's not. And I think that's where reality testing comes into. <laughs> it's a good ego development tool, they say. That's what mental health is all about. We can almost become a detective of our own beliefs. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think, you know, what we're going through right now is giving us the opportunity to do some reality testing. We have the chance to grow and work through some of these default beliefs. I love this tool that you're giving. Yeah, and I would just add, you know, uh, I'm definitely not advocating uh, a Pollyanna approach of, hey, everything's great, everything's hunky dory. Um, we need to be we need to be accurate. But w what I will tell you is that humans do this thing called catastrophizing, right? I, I call it circling the drain, um, and where they just get in this endless loop of negativity, this endless loop of um, of critique, self-critique, and oftentimes it's not accurate, right? It's not accurate because, well, we have this in the phenomenon uh, amongst humans, which is the negativity bias. We're, we're wired to look for what's wrong. Um, but in isolation, oftentimes we can let that go awry. And so one thing I always tell, uh, clients is, Hey, listen, if this was your best friend and your best friend was telling you, sharing you this adversity or sharing you this challenge, what advice would you give them? Or what would they say? Because oftentimes we are our own harshest critic. Um, but if we can externalize that to somebody else, sometimes we can begin to see, oh, there's a gap from the way that I'm, the, the feedback I'm giving myself, the, the story I'm telling myself in my head versus what I would tell somebody else. And that gap is where you need to start thinking more flexibly, more accurately. Well, totally. I don't know how much of a, a shift this is. I think it's um, somewhat along the lines of what you're talking about. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about, you know, you, you actually, you have a, you have a podcast yourself called the, the next year now podcast. And mm -hmm. as I understand you, you talk a lot about purposeful habits and processes. Um, I recently read, you know, James Clear's, uh, atomic, atomic, Habits. habits. Yep. And, habits. Uh, and, you know, he really emphasizes the, um, the concept of process and, and structure. And he says, you know, basically that your, your habits aren't worth anything. It's, it's the, the processes that undergird them. Could you talk about that? Do you, how much do you agree with that? And, 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 and how, how important are processes? How do we build processes? Yeah. So I think a lot of what he's getting at there is there's some really interesting work by Roy Baumeister around willpower and willpower as, as energy. In other words, um, willpower is not finite. It's, um, or sorry, it is finite. <laughs> gotcha. Um, and, yeah. and this idea that the more willpower I use, the less energy I have or the less of it that I have left over. And so to the, to the extent that we can systematize it, that we can automate it, um, automate our habits, systematize our habits and our practices, then we're not relying on our, um, our willpower or said another way, we're not relying on our, um, our motivation. And I'll, I'll say I agree with him to a certain extent. I think one of the, one of the most important things that you can do whether you're coaching somebody, whether you're coaching yourself, whether you're whoever, if you're trying to set goals, I'm a big fan of asking and creating leverage around those goals. In other words, why do you want what you want? Why is it that you want to lose 50 pounds? Why is it that you want to start your own business and make $10,000 a month or $10,000 a week? What, what do you get from that? What do you gain from that? And so when you ask those types of questions and you start going down that line of inquiry, what you're really doing is creating leverage. You're creating motivation for them to follow through on whatever it is, you know, the, 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 the activities, the, the steps, the goals, the mini goals that they're going to have to do. And, and invariably, they're going to reach 
some points where they fail, they fall, they, they, they take two steps back. And, and that's where having those processes in place can be very helpful. But I probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't go to the extent that he would say, which is like the motivation, the willpower is unimportant because I think it's hugely important. And I'll give you an example. I was working with a client one time around um, coaching and they really wanted to, to um, publish a book. And this was a book where they, the, the, the book, I'm trying to uh, be careful here to, to not, uh, to, to, to anonymize it, but the, the book that they were writing was uh, something that was going to help people, right. In some way. And, you know, they were talking about all these different things about like, yeah, I want to write the book. I want to write a book. And then I finally, we're, I was trying to help them build this motivation so that they would no longer, like they could, they couldn't go another day uh, not publishing this book and not finishing writing this book. And we were talking about it and I said, well, think about it this way. Do you think there might be one person who reads this book who as, as a result, maybe you know, of what they learned, of, 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 of what they've uh, thought about, they don't choose to take their life. Because this was, the, 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 the subject matter was kind of this heavy, if you will. Um, and the person said, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. I didn't think about that. And I said, well, can you afford not to write this book? Can you afford not to publish this book when, if just one person doesn't take their life because they've written, you know, they've read your book and person said, yeah, like, you're right. I can't afford to do this. And now they had, they had all the motivation that they ever needed to finish writing that book and publishing it. And absolutely the, the, the automated, the systematic processes and behaviors and actions helped them to finish that book, but it was the willpower that they developed the motivation, or I'll just say the leverage that they created that really helped them to see that through to the end. And they, and, and they, and this person did, they, they finished writing it, they published it. And I'm sure that somebody is going it, to, it's going to help somebody at that level. And I hear, I hear that. And the word that pops up for me is clarity. Mm. You know, the, the power of getting really like crystal clear on an intention on a why, like, why do I want this? That that is as powerful, if not maybe more than the structure around completing the task. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Is I would yes and that all day long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I honestly, I think that's the harder part is the clarity because that requires a lot of like sitting with our expectations and trying to unpack like where the desire is coming from, what the hope is, uh, what do we think that will give us when we get there. And that's, you know, people tend to want to get to the, te- get to the thing. Like, mm-hmm. let's just get to the thing and let me do it. Let me just lose my 20 pounds or right. finish my degree. Oh, I see what you're saying. Instead of getting clear on what they believe that would bring them in their life. Absolutely. If I could add to it, too, I, I don't know how much you come in, uh, you've experienced this, Tom, but like, I find that the healthy habits are the ones that I have to be a lot more conscious about and the unhealthy ones are really, they, they just, have, they're unconscious. It's like, if I'm in a pattern of saying like maybe drinking every night and I know that that's not healthy, <laughs> it just kind of is on autopilot that I want to crack open that beer at five, at five right? Mm-hmm. But, um, but if I'm wanting to be intentional about, you know, like writing or meditating in the morning or even like working out that I have to like raise these things into consciousness, I, is that is that true, or um, is that just because maybe I've ingrained one pattern over another? Uh, I mean, I think part of it is probably obviously it's true, right? It's your it's your it's your, it's your life's you know uh, I won't say your story because that's not right, but I mean, but it's something that you've experienced, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, there there's something about that I think is is probably around. Um, resistance, right. Uh, of, of things that we enjoy and, and don't enjoy. And I would agree be, with that. To, to be fair, <laughs> He's right? very like, resistant to not drinking his, <laughs> his beer, not, not drinking. Well, so here's, here's a, here's a good example for me, right? I was, uh, and, and Shelly, we talked about this when I came for the, uh, to, to, for that interview at a previous organization. Um, I, I developed, uh, acid reflux when I was, 
I don't know. I was probably, it was back in 2000. Actually, I know, I know exactly when it was. It was August, 2009 and it progressively got worse over the years. And so what that meant was when every time I would have any kind of alcohol, it was really bad. And there was enough pain for me. There was enough uh, pain and discomfort, you know, uh, for, for all the different cognitively, physically, emotionally, uh, that I, I basically, I stopped drinking. So not that I was a heavy drinker or anything like that, but, um, but I just, I, I don't drink anymore um, to this day. And, and even then I, I, I've, I've had surgery since to, to fix my acid reflux. And, and thankfully that's worked. Uh, it's like 98% gone with, you know, a little bit every now and then. And I've, I haven't gone back to it. Um, why? Well, I don't know. I, over time, I've just developed that, that habit where I remember the, the pain and discomfort that it caused. So, um, but the, absolutely we get things out of bad. We do things that are bad for us that we get positive emotion. There's a payoff. Yeah. There's a payoff, hmm. right? Like people that do drugs, uh, you know, if you, let's just say somebody's doing heroin, there's an, uh, a feeling of ecstasy that is associated with that. There's a feeling, you know, people that do, um, psychedelics, right. Psychedelics are actually being used in the treatment of PTSD and depression, but there's a, there's an amazing sense of feeling at one with the universe. There's an amazing sense of euphoria associated with it. And so those are, those are strong, powerful emotions and physical, uh, physical, uh, feelings or, or physical, uh, reactions that we feel that, you know, that, that hit our nervous system in a positive way. So it's not necessarily it, it, like, it doesn't, it makes sense that you would have these bad habits that are harder to, to break when they create those things for you. Yeah. And I, I, one of the questions I ask uh, my clients a lot is, you know, how are you being complicit in this thing you say you don't want? And almost always, always there's, there's a payoff there. It's not entirely conscious for many of us, but we get something from doing the things that we say we don't want. <laughs> and, and it might be that it's just too hard to break the habit. It's going to require too much sacrifice, you know, whatever the, the, the behavior changes. Um, so I think that that's the resistance piece of this is, is big. I think absolutely that any one of those things that you want to change, whether it's a habit, whether it's a goal, whether it's, if you don't start with the why, uh, then it's, it's very difficult. It's not, it's not, uh, and it depends on what you're trying to accomplish, but it's very difficult to be successful in achieving whatever it is that thing that you say, right? If you, you know, if you're, if you're why, if you, if you focus on your why, then the what becomes clear. Yep. Especially for any duration. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want long-term longevity in this change, it does require getting to the, the deep well of, of why you mm -hmm. want to do that change. Exactly. Right. I suppose so. Even the positive or the, or the negative, um, interesting stuff. Um, you, you, uh, Tom, you also, you, you solve, uh, wicked problems. Apparently that is what, um, design thinking was, uh, it, it evolved from trying to solve wicked problems. Um, what are wicked problems? These complex problems I understand. Um, and in your estimation, does design thinking, does it play a vital role in actually creating real tangible solutions? Uh, I have to say yes, because this is what I do know. I, I <laughs> of course. Um, and can I, can I break into and ask Tom, I am, uh, would love for you to share how your work in positive psychology and design thinking overlap in solving these problems, because I think you're coming at it in a really unique way that psychologists purely and design thinkers purely don't come at it with. So you've got this really like, cool toolbox that you're working with. So talk a little bit too about how they overlap. Absolutely. So let's talk about wicked problems. Um, another way to say this is that in life, in our world, there are two types of problems. There are uh, puzzles and there are mysteries. And design thinking works really, really well with mysteries. Um, puzzles, so let's just unpack that a little bit. Puzzles <laughs> puzzles are, you know, if you give me enough data, um, if, if I have enough time, I can use my, I'll call them conventional, um, conventional methods or techniques to eventually solve that problem, right? It, it's basically, I need, an, given enough data disclosure, I will eventually solve that puzzle. And a, a mystery is, well, things are ambiguous, things are uncertain, and the more data that I have, the more uncertain and the more ambiguous that it becomes. 
Um, the longer that I work on it, the more time that I put on it, the, the, the more challenging or uncertain that it becomes. And so the, the example I like to give with this, and it's not my example, I'm, I'm pulling it for somebody else. So uh, I, I forget the exact person's name. So, but when you Google it, you'll find it. And the example I like to give is, you know, when we were trying to find uh, Osama bin Laden, right? That was a puzzle. Over time, we were, you know, we we had pieces of intelligence that would tell us, like, okay, you know, family member was here, or he was last seen here, or we think that, you know, we've got this intelligence saying that they're, they're, you know, that they're going to be planning this operation here. But given enough time, given enough uh, data disclosure, we were going to solve that puzzle. Now let's contrast that with the mystery. If a mystery would be, you know, if if you were trying to think about what a post Saddam Iraq looked like, uh, that's more of a mystery because we had some models. We had some, you know, some of the, the, the technocrats uh, and diplomats had models of, of what that post, you know, that world would look like, but we didn't have tangible real data. We didn't have um, tools at our disposal to be able to use to try to solve that problem. That was, that was a mystery. Right, and so uh, design thinking works really well with mysteries. Uh, it can work well with, um, with with puzzles as well, but it, where it really shines is in those uh, those mystery problems. And part of that is because you know a big part of design thinking is uh, is what we call ethnographic research, which is uh, the fancy person's uh, way of saying the study of people. Sorry for all the anthropologists listening, but, but it's the <laughs> study all, of people. Yeah, they're all grimacing right now. They're all grimacing right now. Right? <laughs> well, I and, thought that eth- ethnographic was field research. So it can be field research, and oftentimes it is because you're going out into the field to study people. And there's a variety of ways you can do that. You can do ethnographic interviewing, which is to say I can go and talk to somebody and do an interview. I could do uh, walk-a-mile immersion, which is can I walk what, – what does it feel like to walk in their shoe steps? So I'll give you an example of what that looks like. If um, I, I work at an organization where we designed a prosthetic arm. It was a nerve-innervated prosthetic arm. And if I wanted to walk a mile in, uh, in their shoes, maybe of the users that we're designing for, maybe I tie my arm to my chest for a day. So I only have the use of one arm. Is it exactly like that, you know, not having an arm? No, but it gives you a sense for what it's like to walk in their shoes. Um, right. And that's I'm, my understanding of uh, design thinking is that it does begin with empathy, which I think is, is kind of hard to, to achieve sometimes, right? It takes time takes time. Uh, and so, uh, but it, it, it's doable. I mean, it, I'll say this design thinking projects don't have to be longer than conventional projects. Uh, and oftentimes they're, they're shorter. They work in, in shorter cycles. Mm. Yeah. How does your, your background in positive psychology inform the way that you do design thinking? So a, a big part of when you do that is you learn more about what's working, what's not working. Um, you get to start making sense of that data. Uh, that qualitative data. And, and oftentimes where you get a mystery problem where somebody says, go make this widget better or go improve this, which is a very ill-defined, vaguely defined problem statement. One of the real big strengths of design thinking is to say, hey, we've thought about this problem a little bit. We did a little bit of research. And guess what? Actually, the real problem that we want to solve is this thing here. And you gain a lot more clarity around the problem so problem framing, problem reframing is really, really huge in design thinking. Um, and, and that's where it's so important because when you have a, uh, an ambiguous problem space, when you have an ambiguously defined problem statement, it can be hard to solve that problem because it's ambiguous. And so design thinking through its tools helps, to, um, helps you to gain clarity, helps you to frame the problem more specifically or more impactfully. Um, and then, you know, along part and parcel with, uh, with the ethnography and problem framing is this idea around co-creation and doing it together collaboratively, whatever that you, me together, um, that we, that we design is going to be better than, than the one person alone. Right. Um, and then this idea is also around rapid prototyping and testing and not spending a lot of time and energy on a hypothesis that we don't even know to be true. So what's the quickest, fastest, yet most effective, most effective way for us to test out this idea so that we're not spending loads and loads of time or loads and loads of money? So those are kind of the, the hallmarks of design thinking. 
Yeah. So in a couple ways, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of research on positive psychology and creativity, uh, specifically coming from, uh, for all the, the nerds out there from, um, Barbara Fredrickson from the university of North Carolina. She's done a lot of work on positive emotions. And I did my dissertation on broad and build theory. So oh, I'm with so you. you know I'm nerding well, with right? you right now. Yeah. So it's, it's a nerd fest. <laughs> We're nerd now, but you know, for, for everybody else, what that means is, you know, the more positive emotions that we experience, uh, lots of good things happen. And one of those things is the more creative we become, not only in volume, but also in, uh, in the, the idea itself. And so oftentimes when I'm, uh, when I'm engaging in design thinking activities, say brainstorming, for example, or, um, or whatever it may be, but brainstorming is a, is a, is a good, uh, I'll say brainstorming and concepting. Um, those are two good techniques or, or, or two good areas where this, this applies. I'm always thinking about what are the ways that I can prime them for this activity and how am I going to do that? Well, if I know that when we experience more positive emotions that we become more creative, then I can use that as the insight to drive that activity. And so whether that's doing something as simple as, hey, let's just do a fun and engaging improv exercise before we start this brainstorming because everybody will have a laugh, everybody will experience some positive emotions and I know that'll be, um, you know, that will help them. But that's one way that, um, that we can do that. Um, does that make sense? Love it. Yeah, yeah. I have, um, if I pull us back like 30,000 feet. So yeah. as you're, <laughs> with your positive psychology hat on, your design thinking hat, ethnography hat, like in this crisis that we're in, and if you were tasked with helping create this new normal, you know, with all of these kind of hats that you wear, how would you approach this question of how we now move into a post-coronavirus world, um, what would you be asking? What kind of question underneath the question would you be um, asking us to ask, you know, so that we can start moving forward in this creative, um, flexible kind of possibility way? Yeah, so let me... Let me take it from, it's, it's still going to be from a, a positive psych slash um, design thinking angle, but like some practical things that I, I would encourage people to do. Um, one thing is something that we taught in the, um, in the MRT program, and it was, uh, it was called PIP, put it into perspective. And when you're facing, oftentimes this happens when you begin to catastrophize, when you begin to ruminate. Uh, which lots of people are doing now, right? I mean, people are like, "What's going to happen? What if I lose my job? What if I, uh, what if I, what if I catch the virus?" Like, and they just get into this endless cycle of rumination and catastrophizing. So, a really great tip for for those people would be, and this is rooted in positive psychology. This is rooted in the the data. Uh, is this this idea called PIP? Put it into perspective. And the way that this works is, you're going to start off by envisioning the worst case scenario. And then you're going to follow that up with envisioning the best case scenario. And then you're going to follow that up with, or you're going to end with, uh, the most likely outcome. And then finally, you'll think about a mitigation plan for that, or, or a, a, I'll, I'll just say it, a plan of action for that most likely outcome. So let's, let's pull this through, right? One of the things that I've heard a lot of people, rightfully so, uh, worrying about in this pandemic is, what if, what if I get the coronavirus? And, you know, uh, my dad, he's, he's, he's entering in his, his seventies. Um, he's, he's worried about this. So, you know, if, if he, if he were doing this, I might say, okay, well, what's the worst case scenario? And he might say something like, well, worst case scenario is I, I get the coronavirus and because I'm older, uh, I, I'm, I know I'm going to die. I'm like, I'm, I'm done for, and I'm going to die. I'm going to leave your mom a widow and, you know, uh, she might run out of money. And then he would go and say, okay, what's the best case scenario? Best case scenario is like, you know, this, this whole thing's overblown. It's just going to, it's going to blow by in, in another few weeks and uh, we'll, we'll be fine. And then he would finally say, okay, well, what's the most likely outcome? Well, most likely outcome is, you know, it, it's spreading pretty quickly. So there's a good chance he's going to get it. And if he gets it, um, that's okay because, you know, he was a Marine for 27 years. He's, he's kept himself in really good shape. He eats well. He's, 
Um, he still exercises. He's got a strong immune system. So he might feel ill for, uh, for a week and so, or, or maybe two weeks. And so what, what is a plan of action that he can have? Well, if plan of action is, you know, he may need to make sure that um, any medicines that he takes, he might need to, to buy extra. Um, he may need to uh, make sure that he has, um, you know, tele, telehealth access through his insurance uh, in case, you know, he can't get out. Um, but he can begin to, 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 to build this plan of action. And so when, once you do this, it, it really short circuits that ruminating and that catastrophizing uh, that you do in times of adversity or that you can do in times of adversity. Does that make sense? Totally. And I had forgotten that that was the, the acronym is the PIP acronym. <laughs> I just spoke about this on a Facebook live, how I, I have trained myself. I think even not knowing completely that this was a thing to do <laughs> to almost counterintuitively go to the worst case scenario in my head and then kind of walk myself back to what's the, the rationality here for what's more likely to happen. So you're, uh, you're speaking my language. <laughs> I mean, the other thing I would say, I have a few other tips that are kind of rooted in design or rooted in positive psych and, and design. Um, I, I would say one thing is, you know, sometimes people will avoid the, the stress or the anxiety. In other words, they're like, I'm going to go watch some Netflix or I'm going to go outside and run and I'm going to, I'm going to go meditate. And they, they start avoiding kind of, uh, tackling the, the stress and that could be equally um equally problematic um and i i think that you know like carl jung once said uh, what you resist persist persists and there's value in saying okay let me let me let me feel my feelings let me describe how i'm feeling let me put that in onto paper but not let it you know feel it but then use you know a, a tool like pip uh, or, or otherwise to, to kind of, um, and then once you've felt it and, and, and you've, and you've experienced it and then you can move on. And that's where, you know, potentially mindfulness, uh, mindfulness practices can be very helpful. Mindfulness, uh, meditation. Um, I think part and parcel to that, everybody should be do- exercising self-care right now, making sure you're eating well, make sure you're exercising, make sure, making sure if, 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 you know, if you don't, you should spend time in nature. Um, those types of things. Um, and then, you know, from a, from a perspective of design thinking, I think one of the, one of the hardest things that we, that we face right now is that we're not good at prioritizing. And so there's, there's lots of things that we could be doing and you could probably brainstorm a ton. And, and especially now that you have a lot more time, or at least I'll say I have a lot more time as my, my training and consulting business has been hit pretty hard by the, um, by this pandemic, but to give yourself time to say, okay, rather than, you know, all these different things I could, you know, I could brainstorm 10 or 15 things I could work on right now within my business or within my, my own personal care. Um, what are the the two or three things I want to prioritize? And people have a hard time prioritizing. Yeah. So, guilty. Yeah. You're right. So one thing that I like to use, uh, it's, it's, a, I'll, I'll explain it. I think it can make it pretty clear is something called an importance difficulty matrix. And this could be used to prioritize any type of data. So whether it's, you know, hey, um, how do I prioritize the food I'm going to get by at the grocery store versus how am I going to prioritize my my next career or the steps that I'm going to take, the actions I'm going to take to, to find a new job. Um, but it's called the importance difficulty matrix. Now, imagine, if you will, a quad chart. And there's four quadrants. The horizontal axis is going to be importance. You can also call it impact. And it's going to go from low to high. And the vertical axis is going to be difficulty. And it's going to go from low to high. You're going to start out by ranking one axis at a time. You're going to start out by ranking, uh, relative ranking from low all the way to the, uh, from the left-hand side all the way to the right-hand side, uh, that importance or impact. And then once you've, once you've done that ranking, and I used to, I, what I normally do is I just capture these on post-it notes and I put it right on my wall or a piece of uh, paper, um, flip chart paper, something like that. And once I've got that horizontal axis um, prioritized, then I add the vertical axis, which is difficulty. And I'm just moving them up and down. Same thing from low to high. And at the end, you can bisect your axes to create your quad chart. And you now have a great way to help you prioritize 
whatever it is, the data that you're prioritizing, whether it's habits that you want to do, things you want to buy, actions you want to take, ideas that you have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the way that this plays out is your lower left-hand corner, which is going to be uh, not very, it's low in impact or low in importance, but it's also low in difficulty. Those are going to be your quick wins. If you move out to the uh, f- to the right from there, which is going to be your lower right, um, you now have something that's very impactful or very important, but not very difficult. And that is going to be something what I call high ROI or high return on investment. Like it's just a no-brainer, right, to do those things. And then I move up to the upper right, which is very impactful, but also very difficult. And that's what I call strategic. And then finally, I move over to the upper left, which is going to be um, not very impactful, not very uh, important, but very difficult. And I call those luxury. And what's really great about this is you can begin to stratify your data in a way that makes it more clear and helps you to make a decision more effectively and faster, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love wow. that. Prioritizing from a design theorist. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. I feel like, too, I'm going to add this because I'm sitting here thinking about my, my my list would be and writing down my priorities and where would I put them. I think this activity, this exercise could be really good done together, like with someone that knows you well and you know well to sit Absolutely. down because I think we can lie to ourselves <laughs> thinking so, something would be really hard. It might be easy or vice versa, mm-hmm. or, you know, to have this in dialogue with someone who knows us. You hit the nail on the head right there. Normally when I, I teach this method, uh, so I, I, I teach design thinking, I teach innovation both at the university level, but also with organizations who are my clients. And one of the things that we always say is that, you know, a good size for the number of participants in this activity is anywhere between four and six. And it's precisely for for what you just stated, because having that diversity of thought, having somebody to say, oh, actually, no, that's actually, you know, here's some data that shows that that's not correct or like that. It, it, it helps to uh, mitigate any blind spots that you might have as uh, as an individual or as a smaller group, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Very, very valuable stuff for our audience. Lots of takeaways. Thank you so much for your time, Tom. Before before we let you go, we've got, well, first tell us a little bit about your podcast. And then we've got um, kind of a question that we ask uh, each, uh, all of our guests. Um, but, but tell us about what, what's your podcast? Um, how long has it been going? How do we find it? Yeah. So it's called the next year now podcast. And if you go to the next year now podcast.com, you'll find it. Uh, you can find it on anywhere you find your podcasts. And, uh, so I'll say two things. One, uh, it's on hiatus right now as I'm redesigning it. Um, but that being said, there's tons of really great, uh, information there right now. And the, the, the tagline for it is it's based on the belief that every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital for us to thrive at work and life. And so uh, what I've, I did over the first, you know, 70 plus episodes was um, to interview people, these, you know, what I would call world experts or exemplars in, 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 in whatever the field there it was to, to uncover the habits and practices that have fueled their success. So we've talked to people like Adam Grant from the Work Life uh, podcast and, you know, Five Time or whatever it is, uh, New York Times bestseller. People like Tom Rath from StrengthsFinder 2.0 and, and other books, um, Angela Duckworth. So we, I've been very fortunate to, to have some really fantastic conversations. And it's going to continue in, in that vein where we will look for habits and practices to help fuel your success, but it's going to be more of a solo-based podcast um, and less of an interview-based podcast. So I'll begin to start sharing more of my story and more of the things that I'm learning about and, and, and leverage that um, as we go forward. Um, that's awesome. That's so good. Yeah. I, I, um, I think you have such a valuable and unique perspective with your background. Um, and I love the way that you, you talk about this. Sometimes the the perception is this work is a little soft and you bring such like cool data and the graphs and the way that your brain kind of, kind of breaks this work apart, I think is really, helpful for a lot of people that might find it otherwise pretty unapproachable. So, yeah. So I can't no, I wait to hear the that. new podcast. 
I appreciate that. I try to always make it as, as practical as, as I can. I think maybe that's my engineering. I have this weird mix of an engineering brain and a creative brain. And I think that's the engineering side of me that says, okay, how can I make this pragmatic for people? Yeah. And we need that. We need that. <laughs> so the last question we have for you is what does big self mean to you? I think big self to me means showing up as authentically and as honestly and as purposefully as I can every day. I think we all we all bring our own set of icebergs. Uh, and when I say icebergs, I mean like, you know, the things when you say, well, life should, like, it should be this way, right? It should, this should be that, this person shouldn't be that way. We, we all have these things, the, the should-haves, the could-haves that, uh, that kind of dominate our life. And a lot of times that's, you know, based on how we've grown up, the environment that we've grown up in. Um, but to the extent that you can just show up every day and, and pursue your purpose in life, that you can authentically go after what it is, uh, that's, that's my big self. Ah, wow. Love it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> well, this has been just a trip to get together with you and catch up and hear about your amazing work. And we'll be promoting your podcast alongside with you. So let us know when it, when it relaunches. And I've just loved this. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a wonderful conversation. And anytime you want to do it again, uh, I'm, I'm always uh, willing to hop on. Okay. Awesome. We're game. Thanks, Let's man. Thank you for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, join the community on Facebook at the Big Self Society. You can find us at big underscore self on Twitter. And we are also at the Big Self Society on Medium, where we feature and curate content on topics ranging from psychology to creativity and productivity. We'd love to hear from you. What show made an impact on your thinking, your habits, your decision-making, or anything else? And anyone you'd like us to reach out to and have on the show, let us know.